And I know that this will sound really extreme and, and uh, sound like hyperbole. There's not a single college of education that should exist today. Understanding the complementarity of masculinity and femininity, we have to get back to that. In our lifetimes, we will secure the greatest, most noble aspect of the American promise, which is that every child, when he or she comes out of the womb, is going to have the best education anyone in the world has ever had, even if they're in a poor family. Dr. Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Lila, it's a privilege. There's a lot to talk about. Heritage is a huge organization. I think it's the premier conservative organization in the country. A lot of people say that. You have to account for my bias. I think so. I think you're right, actually. I'm, I'm with you on that. And it's led by someone who's got an incredible background. So let's start with you. Um, I actually got to hear you speak on classical education last night, which was fascinating uh, to support Camino schools, an all-boy, all-girl school here in Southern California. But you have a deep, deep trench in education as well as public policy. So give us a little background. I do. You know, as, as uh, you learned last night, uh, my big passion is classical education. And uh, for so many years, I told people I do education for a living, but politics is my real passion. And so last night was, was great. Just a, a brief few seconds on that to be able to understand people appreciate the Heritage Foundation and uh, the credibility that we offer any effort like the Camino schools, which of course is totally independent of heritage as, as it should be. And yet to be able to also talk about the the years that I spent in classical education, founding a K through 12 school, running a classical college, Wyoming Catholic. It's our passion. And, and my wife and I are in year 11 of homeschooling our kids, a, a world you know very well. And it's a classical Catholic curriculum. And, and there are other ways you can educate people, but there's nothing as good as classical education. So how did someone with all of that background, PhD in history, then you go on and you're leading multiple different educational institutions, a college, I think a high school at one point, and now you're in Washington, D.C. leading arguably the biggest and top conservative think tank in the world. How, what, tell me more about that trajectory. Well, the short answer is the Holy Spirit. And I really do mean that. Um, the second part of that answer is just about my own personality. I'm just an extremely curious uh, person about, mm -hmm. about things, about knowledge. And so, you know, I was the nerdy second or third grader who read when we were able to go to the library, when you could read well enough to do this, everyone else was getting fiction books. I read all the biographies of Abraham Lincoln, and I read all the biographies of other presidents and civil war generals. And, and so I, I decided from moment one of, of being in college all the way through getting my doctorate that I loved American history. And when you love American history, then you have to, I think you have to love or you have to want to love the founding of America. And once you start studying the founding of America, you get into philosophy, you get into the history of religion, why we would even have this principle of religious liberty, all of that to say, you end up being conversant, although not an expert in many things. And that has served me really well. And, and being someone who uh, also is part of my formation uh, has deep gratitude to the formerly called Boy Scouts of America, uh, where I, uh, we're no longer um, involved for obvious reasons. But for me, it was very important uh, growing up to learn about leadership and coupling that with faith, with a deep love for history. It's presented me a lot of opportunities, and it is a great privilege to have done all of those things, including being president of Heritage. It's awesome. And the, the study of history, I think, is a forgotten 
a forgotten art today. We don't even know how to understand history. Not a lot of people spend time studying it. It was my major. I'm not a PhD. It was my major at UCLA, and that means different things. But I chose it for similar reasons you were describing. You get a piece of politics, you get philosophy, you get literature, you get these different elements, and you blend it together to tell the story of what's happening in humanity and and what is human nature. And you know where to look. And you know, and you know where to look. Yeah, I mean, people ask me all the time, whether it's my own kids, you know, who are in that season of life trying to figure out what to major in in college or students along the years who say, what should I major in? That's major in history. If you don't know major in history, it doesn't mean you're going to be a professional historian, although I would say that's a, a, a very noble profession, especially right now. But even if you don't, it teaches you the skills to to figure out where the answer is. And, and ultimately, to the heart of your question, Lila, that's what we're missing is just that curiosity to go seek the answer and the ultimate answer which is capital T, truth. Yes, capital T, truth. Today, we are plagued with my truth. We don't really care about the capital T. It's all about our own subjective experiences, which matter. Our experiences matter, but they don't dictate morality or reality. Uh, But then in addition, we, I think we don't respect tradition. We don't respect history as a society. And so we're always constantly innovating into ourselves, into problems a lot of the time. I mean, some innovation is obviously fantastic, but when you innovate timeless truths into lies, you get, you get some issues. Yeah. And, and, and not to go all academic with, with the response, because what you're saying is relevant to everyone in our practical everyday lives. But what has happened, especially in the last 20 years, in spite of all the good things that technology and innovation offer is that we become very atomized. And when we become atomized, the symptoms of that are loneliness, as we know some, from some really thoughtful sociologists on both the political left and the political right. This is bipartisan concern. But the other thing, this is the key point, is that we, we also just believe that we're an end unto ourselves. So in other words, if you're not spending a lot of time in community, a, a, a grave complaint that I hear, especially from young men, and by young men, I'm not just talking about teenagers, but men in their 20s and early 30s, it's extremely dangerous for them and for civil society. That's not to say it isn't a problem for women, but it's decidedly profound problem for young American men right now. And we have to fix it. How do we fix that? Uh, we fix it, number one, by recognizing that masculinity properly ordered is a great value to society. And it's a great value for both men and women. And I can say that as a as a brother of two sisters and a father of three daughters. This is really, really important. And thankfully, to inject some optimism, I think we've, we've turned the corner. We've seen the absurdity of what the radical left has done in portraying any virtuous, noble, manly man as being somehow toxic. It, it couldn't be farther from the truth. But also, as, as I know, you not only know, but you, you yourself personify, the compliment, understanding the complementarity of masculinity and femininity. We have to get back to that. That's so far upstream from, say, the the transgender agenda debate that we're having right now. But the, the other thing we have to do is, although it was perfectly right to create, for example, equal settings for uh, collegiate sports for women, that and it was also right to encourage women to go into college, now about 60% of college freshmen are women. I'm very happy for them. That goes without saying, but I'm not happy for the young men who have been discouraged from going from really powerful but subtle signals that they're somehow less important than women. We've overcorrected in the early days because of really noble intentions, but I I try to avoid impugning motives. 
but having fought the radical left my entire career, starting in higher ed and now, of course, in, in the imperial city of D.C., <laughs> their aims are really bad. They're evil and they're particularly focused on men. Mm. So as leading as the leader of Heritage Foundation, which is setting the North Star for public policy in the conservative movement, what does that look like? Are there public policy solutions to the crisis of masculinity today and and, and it's femininity too? I mean, obviously, like you say, they complement each other and there's major issues in both feminism and the reaction of meninism. I don't know if you've heard that one, but, um, you know, the hatred of each other and the comp competitiveness with each other instead of let's complement each other. And then, like you said, you know, now it's like if you're a man, you you're you're a step back that from a woman you're treated differently because you because of your sex it's sexism reverse sexism uh when it comes to college applications uh, college admissions or even getting certain kinds of jobs today so what does that look like is there a solution in public policy perhaps it's the answer is yes perhaps the historian in me always wants to move chronologically or at least as i see <laughs> chronology <laughs> and so it means that we have to be willing to fight the what i call the knife fights in front of us and sometimes they do feel like knife fights so the the best example of that right now in state legislatures in county commission meetings in congress is pushing back the rotten fruit of the transgender agenda and and so that's that's a tactical knife fight obviously more than that for people who are bearing that cross or families who are bearing that cross. But we're we're beginning to prevail on that. And so when we get to next year, when we get to 2024, we get to 2025, not that everything's about campaigns and elections, it's vital that anyone who presents themselves for whatever office as a common sense person or a conservative candidate, they have to be willing to convey that they're going to fight on that issue. But this is the point. That's 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 small ball. Believe it or not, that's small ball. Because the, the bigger question is how do we restore this fundamentally true understanding about masculinity and femininity? So the, to your question, what are the other policy provisions that we need to be looking at? Most of them are in education. I mean, some of them are in the Department of Justice, but most of them are in education. I, I happen to see or believe that 80 or 90 percent of the change that we need to effect in the United States can be done with our education policy. Wow, that's that's big. Yeah. And both K through 12 and, and higher ed. And and um, another time we can talk about details. But for heritage to come full circle in this response, that's where we're focused when it comes to combating the uh, the efforts against masculinity. OK, so this is there's a lot there that's so interesting and important because everyone knows education's broken. Even people with their kids in public school, many of them are unsatisfied. There's, they've seen what happened during the pandemic. There's like, was this really what my kids are going? Is this really how teachers think, treat my kids or how they think about my kids? And, you know, I think homeschoolers have increased by, I don't know if the number, I don't know if you Someone's know. doubled in the last six doubled. years. It yes, it's about 6% of the school age population. It's incredible. So, and these are people, not just on the right, but people on the left. There's people from all parts of the political spectrum who are now homeschooling their kids. I think classical uh, schools have also doubled. Yeah, in the last 10 years. Incredible. So you're saying that from a public policy perspective, fixing education is crucial to all the culture some of these key cultural oh, problems. Completely. I mean, it, it reminds me of, of the, I think, the first media interview I did when I was appointed president of Heritage 18 months ago. And they said, what's your, what are your top three priorities? Education, education, education. And the wonderful interviewer chuckled and she asked the follow-up question, but really, I mean that. No. And, and nothing- the right guy to leave Heritage then. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. No one's complained yet. I guess it's a target-rich environment, but to the- to your, to your question, this is where we not only learn how to read, write, 
have some competency in all of the subjects. But what's forgotten by too many Americans and, and what our, our government-funded school system does not do anymore is the most important thing that education should be, which is the formation of the human person. Now, obviously, in a pluralistic society, which the United States has been, we do have to have some care about not having an established religion. This very serious Catholic understands that. In fact, Catholics in the United States would understand that the best because we've been victims over, over many decades of this kind of thing. But the point is that even there, you can, you can teach classical virtues. You can cite pre-Christian leaders like Aristotle, from whom we get a lot of our understanding of virtue. But then the next thing is these government-funded schools used to transmit those values from one generation to the next, and that's not happening anymore. In fact, we now know explicitly as a result of the COVID lockdowns that as some of these conservative governors and, and local officials were pressing on the teacher unions and the superintendents, the, the ultimate aim of some of these folks, which is that they're their children, not ours. You want to get a formerly apolitical parent upset, someone who really doesn't care about politics, do they just want their kids to be educated well? Tell them that. Mm. And so it's a bad news, good news kind of thing. The bad news part is obvious, but the good news to sum up here is that if we can harness that energy beyond this year, beyond the presidential election cycle, these are important considerations. If we can harness this energy for the 2020s, I think we're going to on New Year's Eve 2029, look back and say the 2020s is the decade that we took our schools back. Mm, I love that. Well, they say Glenn Youngkin, you know, the governor of Virginia, won in a hotly contested race when a Democrat used to be the governor because of education, because of parental rights and parents saying, and this isn't enough is enough. I, I'm not going to I'm not going to have my my role as the leader here and the values I care about. And these aren't just like hardcore right values. These are values about decency and honesty and, and just, you know, family, pro-family, pro-mom, pro-dad, pro-kids values that unfortunately are just being forgotten or cast aside. Well, they are. And I, I actually think Governor Yunkin is the, the, the best example of this but, and because he's, he's running this campaign. He knew that that was an issue, but he didn't fully appreciate, as, as none of us did, I think, how powerful, how potent that parental rights mm. issue was in Virginia. And, and just for people who are unfamiliar with the state, in the northern sliver of Virginia, which is so unlike the rest of the state, it's parents in those places who, 80% of whom are going to vote for his opponent, mm. who are expressing this concern. And it's in the middle of a debate when, when then-candidate Yunkin's opponent says something really dumb about the kids being ours, you know, the states, not yours. And Governor Yunkin, whom I've gotten to know pretty well, is a great guy and as a Virginia now, say a great governor, he knew what had happened and he seized on it. The best part of that story is that not only did he use it as a great campaign weapon, if you will, he's delivered on that. Mm. And he spent a lot of political capital on it. And I'm really optimistic. I'm not just cautiously optimistic, Lila. I'm really optimistic that examples like that have, have really been a shot in the arm for other governors and other elected officials around the country who up to that point have been pretty tentative. Mm. Well, you know, the whole idea of these are our children, right? I mean, does the state really know your child and love your child the way that you do. And certainly they're not responsible for your child the way that you are, but the state pretends, I mean, here in California, there's a legislation that is 
maybe going to make it, you know, make it to the governor's desk and he would sign it because Gavin Newsom, Governor Newsom's insane. I mean, truly, I think I've, I've noticed that he's just he's unhinged. I mean, he's unhinged for abortion. He's unhinged for, you know, radical gender ideology. But this legislation would basically accuse a parent uh, or a parent can be liable for child abuse and le- lose custody of their child if they're not. The legislation is very vague. They're not affirming of the child's gender. Um, now, what that could mean is you have some radical teacher ideologue. There's many of them in the public school who, you know, sees a gender confused or just a gender exploring, you know, a kid who's just like, you know, exploring or maybe they're having issues at home. They have they're on the autism spectrum because a lot of those kids have questions with about their identity and they seize on them. They make them their project. They're this kid is trans. And if the parent doesn't get in line with that, because they can keep that a secret from the parents. I mean, they're already doing that in schools throughout the country, in, all over public schools. And so now if the parent dares to say, no, my child is my child and we're going to get, you know, better health care for them, not just trans them, put them on hormone blockers and mutilate them. You can literally be jailed, not for transing the child, not for indoctrinating them in gender ideology and then blocking their natural, you know, puberty cycle with hormones. You can be jailed for the opposite of standing against that as their own parent. It's terrifying. It is. And and this is not hyperbole. What you just said is real. And the likelihood of that happening, the likelihood of that bill advancing through your assembly and the likelihood of your governor signing that are really high or is really high. Is it going to wake up finally? Yes. The silent it, majority look, of liberals and conservatives? Yeah, because the, the point that the, the, the broader kind of political point that you're making there, I think, is really, really important for people to understand. 80 85, maybe even 90% of Americans would disagree with that. And so disagree with, with, with Governor Newsom's position. Exactly. Yeah. And and so you think about the Yunkin example, you think about Governor DeSantis, you think about Governor Abbott, a whole bunch of really great governors who've up to that point have been a little tentative on this mm-hmm. issue. They don't, they know that they can't be because they have wind in their sails. They have the American people behind them. And so it will be terrible and draconian and evil for the families in California who have to suffer through that. The, the good news, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, if in fact that's the tunnel that's built, is that that will be struck down. And by the, the, by, by, the, the by the Supreme Court. Fantastic. Yeah. And so <laughs> final point is- Phew, We're staying in California, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, We're it's, fighting it's, for the it's, state. It's, it's like potential martyrs, I understand. Um, but the point is, We've got to, as a, as a movement, tap into that angst mm. and turn it into a desire to reorder American schools, to upend the California Assembly, to prevent Gavin Newsom in particular from having any future stops in his political career. Music to my ears. <laughs> uh, let's start <laughs> That's with- That's why the first, I'm here. Let's start with, the, I, I love it. Thank you for not giving up on us. Um, let's start with the first thing that you just said as you were closing out that great statement. You were saying it starts with changing the landscape of education, changing our school system. And it, you know, one of the things you were speaking about last night, which I was so interested in, and I love that heritage, it is, I mean, you're an educational organization, but education for changing public policy for education is key. This idea that, classical education is not some like weirdo alternative thing that some people, you know, get all excited about, but it was education for centuries until basically last 100, 150 years of modern, whatever we want to call it, education, post-industrial revolution education. I mean, there's different uh, interesting theories. I'm sure you have them on this, but tell educate me and our listeners many of them who are maybe interested in this already, or maybe they're not, they're not as well-versed yet. What is classical education and why is it so important? 
I'll answer your question directly and then tell you a little bit about the history. So the classical education is, is an educational approach that focuses on truth, which people might say, well, that's what all education is. Well, unfortunately, not anymore. And the way it does that is to go through a, a very disciplined series of, of, of studies of subjects in the early grades called the, the trivium. And, and for people who think Latin words are scary, stay with me. Trivium is just learning phonics learning how to spell, learning the logical order of words, and then reading good fiction, reading good nonfiction, of course, learning math and science. And, and I'll just say for members of the audience who might be scientists, mathematicians, STEM people, classical education is a great, it is the greatest foundation to STEM education. And, and as a result of classical education, people will read the great books as they're called. They will be, students will be part of what we call the great conversation, capital G, capital C, because it's a conversation that men and women for millennia now have been having about what is the meaning of God? Who is God? For someone who isn't religious, what's the meaning of the human person? What's the relationship between the human person and the state? I mean, very relevant to the conversation we're having here. What's my relationship as, as a human to, the, to, the, to nature? And, and other obviously very relevant questions. This is the point, that when you see students in a classical school and they get to these pivotal grades like fifth grade or eighth grade or obviously 12th grade, they are students who know how to think. There are students who, and this is coming from this, this educator, me, they do the most important educational skill that only a few percentage points of Americans understand, that's synthesizing information. And so if you can synthesize information, this is the last point about the definition of classical schools. If you can synthesize information, then you have a natural skepticism toward the atomization of society because you know, properly ordered, in truth, in goodness, and in beauty, in spite of all of mankind's imperfections as humans, that you can synthesize this into a meaning. And when we have a unified meaning, and we understand that, or at least understand aspects of it, we also tend to be very joyful. And so anyone who, after that definition, is still a skeptic of classical education should just visit one. Visit a classical school, Protestant school, Catholic plenty of non-sectarian classical schools. There are many flavors of how you can do this, but all of that to say it also used to be called education until the 20th century. And for anyone who still isn't convinced, then I, the, the, the onus is on you to prove to me that since the 1970s, when we've spent $11 trillion on schools, noble intentions, we, we ought to educate everyone in the United States. We spent $11 trillion on it. And for every demographic group in this country, attainment in mathematics, in the sciences, in reading, in history have gone down. And we're now barely in the top 75 in the world in educational attainment. Tell me that it isn't time for a revival in classical education. But the good news, Lila, to sum up here, is that parents are ahead of the policymakers and they've been walking, they've been voting with their feet starting homeschool classical co-ops, starting classical schools of all stripes. And the good news is that the great news is we're living through the revival. And in our lifetimes, we're going to see it. And in our children's lifetimes, by the time they're sitting here doing what you and I are doing, perhaps, when they talk about education, it's going to be classical. Mm, I love that. Well, and I'm so blessed because I was homeschool classical. Homeschooled, you know. 
with classical education. We, and my parents started a classical academy. Uh, at your talk last night, there was a friend of mine and he kind of was joking, half serious though, you know, he's, I don't know, in his thirties. I wish I want to be classically educated. You know, can I go to, can I go to classical school? You know, how do I do this it's as the, an adult? Because, if, if I may, the, the, yeah. the, the greatest request that parents of kids in classical schools have is teach me this. Right. Because it's, it's learning how to think, as you said, I, I think so much of educate modern education today is giving inputs and, and quite frankly, amoral or even sometimes immoral inputs, meaning there's ideologies that are just being stuffed on kids, pushed on kids. And instead of teaching the child to understand, like you say, truth and to seek truth and understand logic, how, how logic works, how rhetoric works, they're just being given stuff to regurgitate then. And that's a lot of the testing process. It's like regurgitate the answer here. Uh, and, and many of the facts that they're giving or the inputs they're being given are not are not true or they're not, uh, you know, they're out of context. And and you have just the crisis of today, the numbers you were sharing, people are not well-educated today. They they struggle. And and I think the, this, the, the chokehold that leftism has today, what's the relationship between that and the breakdown in education? It's a, it's a huge relationship. In fact, uh, and I'll, I'll make this succinct, although we could spend just an hour on, on, on just this starting in the late 1800s, uh, philosophers like Dewey and James were trying to turn education into something that was not about unified truth, it was not about classical education, but about, in their words, preparing the student to join the workforce, which is not a bad thing. I mean, just to tell you as as uh, as a parent of of kids going into the workforce, I want them to be in the workforce, but that's not the aim of education. It is. It ought to be a really good byproduct of a great education, which is someone who knows how to think, they know truth, they treat people well, they know virtue. James and Dewey hated that. James and Dewey's students became professors in the 1940s and 50s. Why did they hate that, by the way? They, they that hated right? that because they, thanks for that question, they hated that because ultimately they saw the state as needing to be in control of what was being taught. And it was also, they needed to f people to fill particular at the time economic roles, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and But the thing with economic roles is those have changed. Yeah. Every decade, economic roles of, change of and course how they we do. work out in the, because of technologies and uh, and also just global development. So it, no, you're, 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 you're spot on so the, the, the training, the worker of a decade ago, using the same mechanism today, the workers look different today, yeah. and they need to. But the biggest thing a worker needs if you're working as a human being is you need formation. Yeah. You need to know how to think. You need integrity. You need virtues. And, and you know this from your leadership experience with your organization, people running uh, for-profit businesses know this. It, it doesn't matter what the education of your top em employee candidate has. You are going to take him or her and you're going to put them into your company's or your organization's professional development program, right? Because there's something, the, the great thing about the modern workforce is there's something unique to each corporation, to each organization, right? Mm. And, and, and so no amount of graduate school can prepare someone fully for that. It's, it really underscores the point that you're making. All that to say, then therefore, how about we just give every student the best base, the best foundation of education mm. that we can, and then let the specialization come or the time that they're in the workforce. Right. And so I interrupted you earlier there. You were saying, and then Dewey, basically their students went off to indoctrinate a whole new generation. Yeah. I think the key point to, to uh, conclude there is that William, James, and Dewey's uh, students became the founders of the colleges of education. And I know that this will sound really extreme and, and uh, sound like hyperbole. 
there's not a single college of education that should exist today. Not a single one. They're, they have the, the least prepared students. I'm a fifth generation educator, so I can say wow. this. They have the least prepared students. They have the worst professors who should never have gotten a graduate degree, probably not a bachelor's. They are anti-American. Is this They're why I anti was so bored in college? Yes. My high school education, homeschool classical education was harder and better than college. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> my that, UCLA. There people people listening to this conversation, watching this conversation, they themselves or their children or their grandchildren are nodding their heads because it's true. And so public policy of the next 10 years needs to reflect that. What does that look like? Yeah. Oh, tell, it's tell it's so easy, Lila. All we've got to do is eliminate the US Department of Education. It's a waste of money with with a bunch of bureaucrats who hate America. And if anyone thinks that the president of the Heritage Foundation is just using that as kind of sloganeering, no, we have the plan. I mean, what my, do we replace it with? Though? You're, there's a uh, replacement. nothing, 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 nothing. No, you you just you, you take that investment. It, you know, let's just give. What's the budget? Do you? Uh, it's over. Well, it's it's several hundred billion dollars a year. Wow. And that's uh, crazy. Yeah, it's, it, it's. What do they do with that money? This this, this is this is insanity. Um, they have 32 sub agencies in the Department of Education that do the same thing. And we haven't even gotten into how they are also responsible for the student loan mess that we have created, which is both a Republican and Democrat problem, I'll add. That's a bipartisan critique. Everyone knows that's broken. Yeah. You, but to, to, to answer your question, you give it to the states. And will there be some states that do a better job than others? Yes, that's happening now. But you give it to the states. They're closer to the people. For anyone who would say, Kevin, it sounds like you're just really trying to undermine public education. I've only gone to public schools. I'm grateful to the for the public education that I got. And because of that, I, I want to see it be much better. And we we have to do that because the no, most noble aspect in America itself, a noble ideal, is that in this pluralistic society, we all operate with the assumption that everyone has the equal opportunity to the best education in the history of the world. And it is a travesty. It is unjust. It is evil that we're not only not doing that, we're spending trillions of dollars telling people we're doing it and kids are suffering. So if we put that money into giving kids in the inner city the opportunity for classical education and all the beautiful blessings that come with that, you know, the formation and the uh, how to think and how to learn and how to grow, what would what would the country look like? It would be in a generation, it would be a different country. Wow. Because if you took that money and you said to... Trilli hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. It's in the billions. Yeah. It's the, the annual budget is probably 70 billion. 70 um, billion dollars. A year. Yeah. And this is just the federal... That's just the federal level. Federal agency. Yeah. I mean, obviously every state is receiving some of that money, but then they're, they're adding on top of that. A place like California, Texas, or Florida, New York, spending billions on top of that. But if you take some portion of that money... And you just tell the American people, we're going to guarantee all of you with kids, 60 million school-aged Americans, that you can send your child to the school of your choice. Every dollar we're investing in education will follow the student. Guess what happens? The American people will tell you the kind of schools they want. Mm. The American people, the radical left thinks, are too dumb to make up their minds on this because they want to control them. We happen to believe that the greatest part of America is her people. And her people of all skin colors, ethnic backgrounds, languages, ge geographical locations will tell you, we want an education that treats my child well or a school that treats my child well. Most importantly, 
forms them, prepares them, teaches them the subjects that they need. And most Americans still will say, I want my child in a school that teaches a love for America. Not that it's perfect. It's not. But it is the last best hope for humankind. Mm. And I just believe, Lila, that we're, we've had so many successes at the state level for universal school choice this year. I see in Northern Virginia, where we now live, parents who are definitely politically left of center, fed up, that if we can have leaders of both parties rise to the occasion, that in our lifetimes, we will secure, secure the greatest, most noble aspect of the American promise, which is that every child, when he or she comes out of the womb, is going to have the best education anyone in the world has ever had, even if they're in a poor family. Mm. And that's the that is the criticism, right, from people who hate school choice. They say, you know, I think the well-intentioned ones, maybe they misunderstand. They say, well, this is going to disadvantage children who are already disadvantaged because they're not going to have access to the same schools that maybe more upper class or kids who are better off socioeconomically will have. Debunk that for us. The best way I can debunk that is to rely on one of my colleagues at Heritage, Dr. Jay Green, who's the foremost researcher on that question. And look, I, I lead a think tank, and so I'm, you have to account for my bias yeah, ideologically, but we deal with the facts. There have been 72 studies in the last 15 years or so of what happens to the public schools where there is school choice in the area. 72 studies. 71 of those studies resoundingly show that those students in the public schools where there's school choice and going to other schools, the public schools improve. Wow. So the nature of competition. Wow. What about that other study? It's just mixed results. And so wow. I don't know about you, but there aren't too many decisions in life, too many research questions in life that are that profound. And, and, and the great thing is Jay and, and other people in the school choice movement have been so persuasive on this that we have more than 10 states in, in this year, in 2023, that have passed massive school choice bills. I believe the state of Texas later this year in a special session will do the same. And, and, and then we'll be sprung. And eventually, believe it or not, Lila, in places like New York and California, we're going to get it done because the people will demand it. I love that. Yeah, I'll be first in line. <laughs> doing As that. you should be. So you said, uh, you said, you know, when every child is out of the womb, they will have the best education and, and make America the premier place to educate a child, which it is not today, despite far from incredible it. amounts of money we're spending on it and our wealth and our privilege here. Our kids are suffering. Like you said, they're not even competing with many countries. And, you know, there's kids in this country. I think there was a what's the statistic or are there statistics you have about uh, uh, competency in math? I mean, there's certain I've heard some horrifying numbers. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, where we do these checks, the national, um, the NAEP, um, uh, NAEP test, we do these uh, standardized tests, fourth graders and eighth graders, left and right people believe that it, these, these statistics are good. The, the competency of fourth graders and eighth graders in the United States in math in particular is not just below 50%, it's below 40%. Wow. And so often, or at least in my career, as I've been trying to persuade people of classical education, the most thoughtful questions uh, that are, are skeptical questions have come from people who love math and sciences. And they think, you know, inaccurately that classical education is not good for math and sciences. And then they see that, and then they see the standardized test results of kids children from wealthy families, children from poorer families doing really well, and they start to become convinced. Well, I think there's, you're learning how to think 
and with classical education, but there's also a sense of really focusing on the individual child to understand how they're learning. And I think that's also missing in a lot of school today, especially in public school. Uh, but the, you know, once they're out of the womb, they're getting the best education. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, I lead live action. We're fighting for the child in the womb because they're being savaged. I mean, 2,500 abortions every single day. What's Heritage's take on that? And what are the solutions to stop this bloodshed? I mean, it is the leading cause of death in the world is abortion. First of all, thank you for your leadership and witness on that issue. It is, uh, it's my personal top issue for, for many years. And we can't even talk about education policy really without first acknowledging we have to fix the, the problem of, of abortion. Heritage's position is because we, with all of our policy questions, we start with the ideal. So our ideal in education, for example, is every dollar follows every child. Heritage's position, to be very blunt, is that there are no abortions in this country, period, full stop. And we're going to get there. But as you know better than anyone, while that is a political and policy question, even, even more than that, it's a social and cultural question. And so simultaneously to being very courageous on federal law, we do believe, to be very clear, there is a federal position on this. Thank you for saying that. Because there is a federal position on this. It's vogue among some Republican leaders, leaders today to say, now that Roe is overturned, the fed, federal government has no role to play. And it's like, you have a constitutional right to life. This isn't like states get to decide whether you live or die and you're an innocent child. The state doesn't have the right to do that. So the federal government has a role to play, especially when you have states who are violating fundamental constitutional rights, like here in California. Of yeah, children, that's, left that, and right. that's exactly right. And, and so there has to be federal action. There needs to be state action. There even needs to be local action. Unfortunately, this is the fight of our lifetime. I mean, Dobbs obviously was a great gift. It was the answer to prayer and, and obviously a lot of sacrifice. And unfortunately, 55 million lives lost. Imagine if that hadn't been the case, the, how much easier it would be to answer these policy questions, how much easier it would be to talk about masculinity and femininity, how many more families would be intact. And, and, the, and the good news is that I think in a generation or so, we're going to get there. Mm. But that's, that doesn't mean that we need to go into, or elected officials need to go into the lex, next election cycle and say, we're not going to talk about it. The reason we got our clocks cleaned, those of us who are conservatives in the midterms, one of the reasons is because we ran away from that victory. It, it is so actually, not, I'm not going to be polite and say lack of courage. I'm going to say an enormous amount of cowardice, cowardice and just, on this and issue. And just blindness. I call yes. it foolishness. It's one thing to be a coward. It's another thing to just be dumb about, it. you know, <laughs> well and it's just like you could have won. I mean, you saw Governor DeSantis, Governor Abbott, some of these amazing governors just win. I mean, DeSantis in a landslide and then he just passed the heartbeat law, right. which, you know, a lot of Republicans right now are so scared of. And it's like protecting a baby when their heart's beating. Why are we even debating this? Yeah. And, and, and you know this well, you'll do such a great job at live action. It, it's a matter of language, right? And so I've, I've reminded some skeptics, including some, some friends in Congress, that you look at, at any poll that polls, do you want to ban abortion starting at six weeks? A majority of respondents say no. But if you ask this same group of respondents, do you want to ban abortion at heartbeat? Overwhelmingly, yes. Because there have been decades of dehumanization of the six-week-old baby so that when an average American here is six-week-old or six-week pregnancy, they don't even say baby, of course, they just say pregnancy. You know, yes. what's in the, what, what does a pregnancy involve? A mother and a 
child, right? But they think, oh, it's six weeks that can't even be a human yet. You know, there, there's all the the mindlessness, right, of today, the misinformation about embryonic development. But you say, well, the heart's beating three and a half weeks from fertilization, around you know five weeks gestation. Okay, now we're talking about a human being. Clearly, yeah. humans have hearts. You know, this is a this is a life. It's just it, it's a it's a reframing of the issue that, I mean, for example, Governor DeSantis knew well. So when he was advocating for this wonderful legislation, he's talking about the baby, he's talking about the heartbeat. Even Americans left of center who generally are pro-abortion have a real hard time. They most of them get queasy about this as they should, right? And so your point, my point, Heritage's point to come back to your question is focus on that. Let's go get the wins we can, but we're not going to sit back and applaud ourselves for having done this, pat ourselves on the back. We're going to keep working until literally there's not a single abortion. in this. Yes. Country. Amen. A couple more questions. I know we've got a wrap here in a minute. What does the side of making America a better place for families look like? I mean, part of your work on education is crucial. I mean, what is the biggest concern of a parent? besides roof over their head, food on the table, it's how do I educate my child, right? Uh, ending abortion, stopping the killing is is key. But what does it look like, especially for families that may be struggling or parents that, you know, one of the reasons we have abortion, 86% of abortions are done uh, for single women, or unmarried women. So these are women who are just struggling. They're like, I can't, how can I raise a child? What do I do? What are some of the public policy answers to make America a friendlier place to raise a family, to be a parent? I think that's the, along with education and what we do with abortion in particular, it's it's the third of the three most press policy issues in the United States. And so every six months, I, I give my policy colleagues, scholars at Heritage, a charge and uh, on a on a big research paper the the one most recently that they concluded and and really did well was on China which is kind of related to this actually but their current charge right now and this is led by Roger Severino head of our domestic policy is he's excellent he is excellent uh, great pro life warrior great man is what do we do about family policy and so our scholars have traveled the world they've gone to Singapore they've gone to Israel several of us were in Hungary recently getting some data on three countries that have a family policy. And so some of these some of these answers are low what I would call low hanging fruit. They're they're in tax policy. There are penalties, tax penalties to being married. There are in some programs disincentives to having children including when you're married. We have to fix that. These these should be easy things once conservatives control both chambers of Congress and there's a president who understands this. But beyond that is the real question. And so the key key point I would home in on, Lila, is that in Hungary, for example, where they've invested seriously in family policy, two things have happened. The, the, the marriage rate is up and the fertility rate is up. The birth rate is up. But the other thing that's happened to the heart of your question is that the abortion rate among married women has dropped by half in less than a decade. Amazing. What we would therefore speculate will happen, and we're, our researchers will be paying attention to this over the next five years, is that you'll see a decline in the abortion rate itself. And so there's a lesson there. Every country is different. Hungary's smaller by for sure than the United States. But we're taking that lesson, the lesson from Israel, the lesson from Singapore, which is a very, very free market kind of place. And we are we will be putting together a legislative package that we will ask anyone who wants to be president of the United States, but especially on the conservative side, to support. Because ultimately, to sum up here, all of the all of the questions, education policy, what we do about China, all these other pressing questions are moot if we're not getting married and not having kids. It's so true. 
What's the future without marriage and kids? We don't have a civilization anymore. But if we're not prioritizing children and marriage in our public policy, in our culture, in our daily lives, each of us, what are we're how are we ever going to rebuild? Yeah, how are we and ever solve that. And 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 I'm. I mean, this will sound like I'm kind of self-congratulating the Heritage Foundation about this. I'm not. It's actually lamenting. I think we're the only big think tank headquartered in D.C. on the political right that's talking about this. There are some that's smaller crazy. groups that are that are awesome. That's Don't get crazy. me wrong. Um, but we're, we're beginning to see a change in the narrative on this, such that the current issue of The Economist is we, we sit here and have this conversation. The, the, the cover story is about the birth rate crisis. Well, even Elon Musk, you know, complaining about it on Twitter regularly. But as a solution to the fact that we are not replacing ourselves as a population and the economic and social ramifications are terrible for us, uh, is the solution, you know, the Elon Musk route, which is I think he's going around and having tons of different kids with different. <laughs> I would women. advise against so, that. Right. So, so, but <laughs> that can't be right. Because right. There's brokenness and there's, you know, the psychological and societal impacts of that, which, you know, I'm sure I know Heritage is researching. We could get into another time. But marriage and family. Yeah, it's the, it's the success the sequence. Yeah. Okay, so last question. I know then we've got to wrap here. This has been excellent. All right, a decade out. Let's give it a decade. What are the shifts that are going to happen in our culture and politics because of the work we're doing? And we're going to get, we're going to be doubling down on and because of the work of Heritage. Uh, thank you. And, and because of your work and the work of people who are, who are in the audience and supporting your work. So it's 2033. Uh, first and foremost, we will see uh, in, an increase. Give it 2034. 20, oh, give me 11 months. years. Oh, man. Well, it might be dangerous. Okay. Je so New Year's Day 2034. Fair. Kevin, so. Good. Good. I, I hope you do. This is how we operate at Heritage is we great. say, what do we want to accomplish in five years, action, 10 years? Same thing. So, um, First and foremost, the uh, the marriage rate will be up, the divorce rate will be down, the birth rate will be up. If if we are able to implement a fa so called family policy in twenty twenty five, you ought to start seeing this is a long term kind of policy. You ought to start seeing the fruits of that. Abortion rate is down in education. Every state or almost every state, it might take fifteen years in California, will have universal school choice. There will be no U.S. Department of Education, which I know sounds a little mechanical relative to these big social and cultural questions. But it matters because that is hundreds of, that is billions of dollars of a certain, of quite frankly, woke ideology that's also not even successful at being woke, I would no. argue. So they're just sort they of- They can't like, even implement that right? well. But they're stalling progress. And that, that's, you're not, this is not punitive what you're describing. No. They're, they're in the way of real progress we can make in education. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and let's just posit on that point that in 1979, President Carter- was was well-intentioned with this. He may have been, for, for as, as much as I know. It's outdated. So it's time to move on. And then beyond that, uh, states will have continued to exert their their authority properly. I mean, we, we believe in federalism. There's a role for the federal government. But by that, I mean that the states are doing more in education. States can pass family policy. There's nothing preventing in the Constitution, state legislature, from saying we want the birth rate in Texas or in California to be higher. We want the marriage rate to be higher. Heritage is working with, with states on that. But the final thing I would say is the most important, that every American who wakes up in 2034 understands three things. The first is that the American dream is alive and well. The second is that part of that is they have self-governance. That's why we do what we do. And the third is, however they understand it in their religion, giving full respect to our, our pluralism, they understand that there is a higher power, what you and I call God, 
and that this great country, 260 years into its existence at that point, is not only not weaker, but it's actually stronger because of its understanding of that and the dignity of every human person on the planet. Any public policy goals that fall short of those being the aims are a waste of time and money. Mm. Awesome. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. So excited to see Heritage continue to grow. I think you said you've increased in what is it, fifteen million in just the last eighteen months? Yeah, you know we're we're pretty ambitious at Heritage. Good, good hire, good hire. Uh, it's 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 a team effort, truly. Okay, truly. I have one one quick last question, actually, because I can't leave have you leave without me asking this for my benefit. You lead, I don't know how many people are in staff at Heritage. Three hundred some. Okay, you're a hundred million dollar a year organization. What, any tips on leadership? How do you lead an organization that's that consequential in what you're doing and that big? I mean, you're, you're a, a, a very large, not-for-profit, a very large organization. Yeah. What what I've learned, and I've made plenty of mistakes and make plenty of mistakes, is, to that point, first and foremost, is you recruit and and sustain the development of your your leadership team, good men and women who not only in their own right are great, but they're also complementary to you. So I was just coming over here from a, a, a weekly meeting with my executive team. And I hired them in part because they can check me. They can they can fill the gaps that I have. They're willing to tolerate me. <laughs> so there's a certain humility we have to have. But the second is we ought not be humble as leaders when it comes to articulating the vision. So the Holy Spirit calls us to found things as he has with you. He calls us to lead long existing organizations as he did with me. And we ought to be humble, but we ought to be really bold when it comes to articulating vision, articulating strategy. Leaders lead. Mm. And one of the problems we have in this country is that too few leaders want to do that. The fear of vision. Yeah, because it's the fear of failure ultimately. Mm. And we shouldn't fear failure. Amen. I love that. Thank you, Kevin. What Thanks, a fantastic Lila. conversation. Awesome. Thanks so much. Really for appreciate in. it.